In the National Treasure movies, Benjamin Franklin Gates sets off on quests to discover riches and uncover the truth. Along the way, he's guided by childhood stories that have been delivered to him and our nation's historical documents. I mean, half the fun is the fact he has to steal things like the Declaration of Independence and find the codes hidden within. Frozen 2 has a similar element to it. No spoilers, don't worry. But I will say that a story from Anna and Elsa's family history guides them along and advances the plot as the movie unfolds. When we left off last time, Stephen, one of the seven chosen to serve, had been arrested for daring to preach to his fellow Jews that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. Having been arrested and brought before the Sanhedrin, he was accused of blasphemy against Moses, the temple, and the law. Tonight, Stephen is given an opportunity to respond to these charges. As he does so, he reminds his listeners of some of the most famous stories of their own Jewish history. Stephen uses these stories to show that the charges against him are part of the long tradition of resisting the revealed truth of God. His dialogue is not only a defense of himself, uh, it's also a sermon. And in fact, it is the longest recorded sermon in the book of Acts. There's a bunch of sermons recorded for us in the book of Acts. This is the longest one. Uh, It's important to Dr. Luke that we hear what Stephen had to say that day. Now, a person listening to Stephen's sermon that day, being well-versed in these famous stories, should have not only been able to see the continual thread of God's progressive revelation to Israel and God's long-term work to save all those who needed rescue, but they also should have noticed that anyone standing up against Stephen that day was squarely on the wrong side of history. They were going to be counted among those who were enemies of God in the stories that he relayed. Stephen used simple stories to reveal these truths to the Sanhedrin. Uh, It wasn't a complicated calculus that he had to deliver to them. It wasn't a secret Bible code or anything like that. It was just the childhood stories that all of these men would have grown up with. He relates them again to them and proves the point Uh, that not only does he actually speak for God in declaring Jesus Christ the Messiah, but placing them in the story as uh, those opposed to God's work. Now, we as believers in Jesus Christ, we wouldn't put ourselves in the place of the Sanhedrin today, right? We recognize Christ as Messiah. We know that he is King and Savior. But these history lessons that Stephen's going to speak to us still have something to say, even to us as listeners this evening. After all, these stories are just as living and powerful as they were then and as they were when they were first delivered. They are the living oracles of God. And so the question is, what can they teach us? What can these simple stories from uh, biblical history teach us? Well, first of all, it's an encouragement that even the simplest stories in God's Word are full of profound truth and wisdom for us. Those famous stories that if you grew up in the church or maybe you got saved later in life, the first stories you heard, the big ones, David and Goliath and Moses at the Red Sea, these sort of more famous stories, uh, they may be simple and they may be the things that are taught even to children, but they are still full of profound truth. They are still useful by the Word of God because they are just as much the living Word of God as any other section of Scripture. They're full of truth and full of wisdom for us in how we are to live our lives as believers. 
And second, if these stories were meant to be an example to the unbelievers that day before Stephen of how they were like the people resisting the Lord in each case, we want to see the faithful servants of God in these tales and allow their example to teach us about how we can better glorify the Lord, right? So Stephen is going to tell these stories, and in telling them, he's saying, and hey, by the way, you're just like the groups of people that kept resisting God's work and God's revelation in each of these stories, Well, we accept God's revelation and we accept Jesus Christ as Messiah. We recognize all of that. And so we want to look at these stories and say, okay, well, what can we learn from the faithful believing individuals and people in these stories? And so let's get started in verse 1. Stephen, standing before the Supreme Court of Israel, high priest says this, is this true, the high priest asked. The question is, is it true that he had been blaspheming uh, the law and the temple and Moses and saying that Jesus was going to destroy the temple? Brothers and fathers, Stephen said, listen, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he settled in Haran and said to him, get out of your country and away from your relatives and come to the land that I will show you. And then he came out of the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran And from there, after his father died, God had him move to this land you now live in. Uh, He didn't give him an inheritance in it, not even a foot of ground, but he promised to give it to him as a possession and to his descendants after him, even though he was childless. God spoke in this way. His descendants would be strangers in a foreign country, and they would enslave and oppress them 400 years. I will judge the nation that they will serve as slaves, God said. After this, they will come out and worship me in this place. Now, it seems like Stephen is in the wrong meeting, right? They, they level these charges. They arraign him, right, on these capital offense charges. And they say, so what do you have to say for yourself? And it's as if he's reading the wrong script. But this is, in a roundabout way, uh, he's making a case for his innocence. Because what he's doing is saying, hey, you know what, you guys? Uh, God has always raised up individuals to speak the truth to his nation. And consistently, the nation has resisted and rejected that revelation from God, attacking and killing his messengers. That's who I am. That's who you are. And so he is making a case for himself. But he's also taking the opportunity to preach to these men who are lost and headed towards an eternity in hell. And we've seen Uh, the Lord God reaching out to specifically the Sanhedrin again and again and again already in the first seven chapters of the book of Acts. Though Stephen has some sharp things to say, he opens up with tact and respect, calls them brothers and fathers. He doesn't open up by making them his enemies, but his family. He says, hey, we're family together, and I have some things I need to say to you. And it was a family that started with Abraham. When God called Abraham, he made him quite an offer. Uh, He said, I'll give you a new land. I'm going to make a nation out of you. Through you, the whole world is going to be blessed. But this offer was going to require the utmost trust, uh, a life of faith. God asked Abraham to prefer him to his own country, his own heritage, his own family, even his own future. We know that Abraham came from wealth because when he finally left his family, he said he went out with his possessions and with the people that he had acquired. And so Abraham was a man of means. And now God came and showed up. It's not like they were old friends. He just showed up and spoke to Abraham and he said, hey, I'm going to invite you into a life of uncertainty and a life of pilgrimage. I'm not even going to tell you where you're going to go. Just come and follow after me to a land that I will show you. 
Leave the sure inheritance and the secure future uh, that is planned for you here in Ur, Ur of the Chaldeans and instead be satisfied in the spiritual pursuit of a God that you're still getting to know. Abraham didn't even know God's name and he said, come and follow after me. To trust that this God was really going to follow through on his promises, uh, that's a pretty big ask. So yes, the, the things that God was offering to Abraham were dramatic and wonderful and, and uh, astounding, but what was being asked of Abraham was pretty monumental as well. And the story of Abraham in general gives us a wonderful example of faith, right? We are to walk by faith and not by sight. And to walk by faith means not only that we believe God exists, everybody believed that gods existed back in Abraham's day, right? we weren't atheists back then. And so it was more than to just believe that God existed, but that this God, the God of heaven and earth, is to be followed and preferred over any other attachment in this life uh, and in this world. It means that we, as we walk by faith, that means that we are growing more and more in our intimate communion with the Lord, and that we are cooperating with Him in His long-term work first with our families and then with others that we come into contact with. That's what Abraham did. He said, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go with my family and we're going to serve the Lord. We're going to honor what God asks us to do. And then as he encountered other people, he was able to influence them and interact with them as well. Now, Abraham, of course, had his share of stumbles and missteps in his walk of faith. But we see in his story a progressing development of faith and trust in the Lord. He journeyed by stages, it says at one point in Genesis. And it doesn't just mean physically moving from place to place, but in his, in his growth of faith, he journeyed by stages until we get to that dynamic moment where he can stand there and be ready to sacrifice his only son on the altar because the Lord asked him to. That's dramatic faith. And he becomes to us the father of the faith, right, Abraham. And so he's a great example to us of that. Verse 8 says, Then he gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision. After this, he fathered Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. Isaac did the same with Jacob and Jacob with the twelve patriarchs. The patriarchs became jealous of Joseph and sold him into Egypt, but God was with him and rescued him out of all his troubles. He gave him favor and wisdom in the sight of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who appointed him ruler over Egypt and over his whole household. Then a famine and great suffering came over all of Egypt and Canaan, and our ancestors could find no food. When Jacob heard there was grain in Egypt, he sent our ancestors the first time. The second time, Joseph was revealed to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. Joseph then invited his father Jacob and all his relatives, 75 people in all, and Jacob went down to Egypt. He and our ancestors died there were carried back to Shechem and were placed in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. God had promised that through Abraham, all nations would be blessed. And of course, that prophecy ultimately looked forward to the arrival of the Savior, and we are part of the nations that are blessed through Abraham's seed, Jesus Christ. But in the story of Joseph, we see God blessing a nation that did not know the Lord, a nation that was not attached to the Hebrew people, and that's Egypt. Because God was willing to allow Joseph to suffer, and because Joseph was willing to endure suffering, not only was the family of Israel saved, but the nation of Egypt was saved as well, and peoples from all around the region. 
Stephen points out that Joseph, the deliverer of Israel, was rejected at first, but recognized the second time. Now, this is a clear foreshadowing, a type not only of Jesus Christ, but of the national Jewish response to Jesus Christ at his first coming and then his second coming. You see, the first time Jesus came, he was rejected by the nation of Israel. When Jesus comes a second time, they will look upon him who they've pierced and they will realize this is the Messiah and they will receive him and all Israel shall be saved. That's a great prophecy that is given to us in the Old Testament in multiple places. And here we see that foreshadowed. Now, Stephen reminds his audience that already by the time of just the great-grandchildren of Abraham, God's chosen people were resisting his work and resisting his chosen man. You remember the story, I'm guessing. Joseph is a young man, probably a teenager, and he shows up and he's talking to his dad and his brothers. He said, hey, I had this dream uh, that you guys were bowing down to me. And um, God was going to work specifically through Joseph's life. Well, they rejected that and they resisted that. They say, no, that's not right. Even his father said, you shouldn't say things like that. That's not going to be true. You think we're going to bow down to you? And they resisted what God was revealing to them. Uh, and so uh, they were not hundreds and hundreds of years removed from Abraham uh, and from the revelation God had given them. This is just Abraham's great-great-grandchildren, or just his great-grandchildren, excuse me. And among the sons of Jacob were liars, murderers, human traffickers already. <laughs> Got some real problems. But still, God was with them. God still loved them. He still worked in their midst. He was still trying to reveal himself to them and show them the truth and show them wisdom. He provided a way for these individuals to be saved. And that was through the very brother they tried to kill and sold into slavery. I mean, we serve a God of astounding grace. He says, oh man, we need to save these people. What people? Oh, these people that uh, beat their brother and left him for dead then decided to traffic him to some Ishmaelites. These, these guys who were murderers and liars, who were going into harlots and doing all sorts of things. God says, I love these people. I want to reach out to them. I want to use them. I want to save them. They need to be redeemed. They need to be rescued. And that's the kind of God that we serve, a God of astounding grace. For us as readers, Joseph's example shows us how to keep walking with God, no matter what circumstances we're in. And he shows us that Christianity works whether you're in the palace or in the prison, right? Joseph demonstrates the incredible things that God can do with a life that is lived in sacrifice to him. We talk about Abraham being willing to sacrifice Isaac on the altar, and there's that dramatic moment where he's almost about to sacrifice him. When you look at Joseph, and in a sense, Joseph lived his whole life on the altar, going from one peril to another peril, being treated so poorly, first by his brothers, and then he's sold into slavery, and then he gets to Potiphar's house, wrongly accused, sent to prison, forgotten in prison. All of these things happening to him. His whole life is spent uh, on the altar, and yet we never see him shake his fist at God. We never see him renounce the God of his fathers. He's just faithful, and he believes, and he, by the end, says that famous line, you meant it for evil, God meant it for good. And so his faith was enough for him to walk through any of those circumstances and to realize that, yeah, he could follow after the God of his fathers in the palace or in a prison. Uh, pretty amazing. And we see what God can do with a life lived in sacrifice. As a result of, of his willing to sacrifice himself unto the Lord, his family was saved, other families were saved, nations were saved. As Joseph invited anyone and everyone to come and be fed in the midst of the famine. 
Not only his allies, but even the very people who tried to kill him, even the very people who, who trafficked him away, he said, yeah, come on, I'll feed you. I'll supply what you need so that you can live and not die. And now Stephen moves to another rejected savior, Moses, verse 17. As the time was drawing near to fulfill the promise that God had made to Abraham, the people flourished and multiplied in Egypt until a different king who did not know Joseph ruled over Egypt. He dealt deceitfully with our race and oppressed our ancestors by making them leave their infants outside so they wouldn't survive. At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. He was cared for in his father's home three months. And when he was left outside, Pharaoh's daughter adopted and raised him as her own son. So Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in his speech and actions. As he was approaching the age of 40, he decided to visit his brothers, the Israelites. When he saw one of them being mistreated, he came to the rescue and avenged the oppressed man by striking down the Egyptian. He assumed his brothers would understand that God would give them deliverance through him, but they did not understand. The next day, he showed up while they were fighting and tried to reconcile them peacefully, saying, Man, you're brothers. Why are you mistreating each other? But the one who was mistreating his neighbor pushed him away, saying, Who appointed you a ruler and a judge over us? You want to kill me the same way you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this disclosure, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he fathered two sons. As was the case with Joseph, it would take a second arrival of this deliverer for the people to receive Moses uh, as the man of God sent to rescue them. Stephen isn't saying these things by accident. He's trying to show the Jews that they were following the same pattern when it came to Jesus Christ. He says, man, you rejected him before, but this is the deliverer that God has sent. These guys, Joseph and Moses and the others, they were just foreshadowing the ultimate Messiah, the Christ. He came, he was here, you rejected him. Uh, but he is the one that we've been waiting for. You know, Moses is one of the most fascinating characters in all the Bible when we think about it and the more we think through uh, the circumstances of his life. Here we'll f we are filled in on a few more details that Moses doesn't give us in the book of Exodus. He's pretty modest in the book of Exodus, doesn't tell us a lot about himself. But here we get a little bit more information. We learn that Moses uh, was very beautiful, even from a young age. He received the world's finest education. There was no finer uh, education in the entire world at the time than the one he received. The ancient historian Josephus records that he would have succeeded Pharaoh as ruler over Egypt. We're told here that he was powerful in speech and actions. He was handsome. He was important. In addition to all of this, he saw himself as the savior of the Hebrews. He said, well, of course, I'm going to be the deliverer of the Hebrews. Uh, and they'll understand that too. That's why he went out that day to kill that Egyptian, right? He assumed that the brothers would uh, recognize this, but they didn't. And when he took the plan into his own hands, disasters followed. He became a murderer. He became a fugitive. It says in verse 23, he decided to go out. Oh, now's the time for me to go do what I think will help God out. I'm going to go out and do what I think is a great thing. I'm going to call myself out into this situation and insert myself when God hasn't directed me yet, when God hasn't prepared me yet, and I'm going to go and do it, and everything's going to be great. And all that followed was death and destruction and disaster. He turns around, and he's not the savior of, of Israel. He's a fugitive. He's a murderer. He's got to run for his life. 
He wasn't ready to be used by God yet. Dr. J. Vernon McGee writes this. He says, He was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, yet he was not prepared. All the learning of the world of that day did not equip him to lead God's people. It's true, he wasn't ready. He was 40 years not ready. But the Lord did want to use this man, and so he slowly prepared him to become one of the most significant leaders in all of human history. He did so much more for God's people as a shepherd than he ever could have done as a sovereign. And he thought, I'm going to be the, you know, the A-list guy. I'm going to be the superhero that swoops in and saves my people. And yet the Lord said, that's not how we're going to do this. I don't need a sovereign. I don't need the most important man in Egypt. What I need is a shepherd who's going to lead these people out of Egypt back to the land they're supposed to be in. Verse 30 says this, After 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in the flame of a burning bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. As he was approaching to look at it, the voice of the Lord came, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. And so Moses began to tremble and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Remove the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I've observed the oppression of my people in Egypt. I've heard their groaning and have come down to rescue them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected when they said, who appointed you a ruler and a judge, this one God sent as a ruler and a redeemer by means of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out and performed wonders and signs in the land of Egypt, at the Red Sea, and in the wilderness for 40 years." As an example to us as readers, Moses teaches us a ton of things, but here's a couple. First of all, his story reveals that God does not need the strength of this world to do his work. The best looks, the best education, the best social position isn't what Moses needed to be used by the Lord. In his case, those things were more of a hindrance than a help. Now, we're not against uh, education and furthering uh, our understanding and training and those sorts of things. But God doesn't need any of those things to change the world or to use an individual. Sometimes they're a hindrance to the work that he wants to do. The Bible says not many mighty, right? God likes to use uh, the weak and stupid things of the world to confound the wisdom of the wise of this world. And so, uh, no, it was Moses' fear of the Lord and his meekness that made him the spiritual man that he was at the age of 80. And Stephen's telling of the story here gives us the important lesson that as individuals, we must be directed, not just motivated. When Moses went out that day thinking, okay, it's time, I'm going to go deliver the nation of Israel, he was motivated. He was even motivated to do the right thing, right? God had even said, hey, I'm going to deliver the people of Israel. I'm going to do it. And Moses said, well, look, God has said he wants to do it. It's a good thing I'm going to do. I'm motivated to do it. Let me go do it. But we have to actually be directed, not just motivated. Because the Bible says that we are sheep who need to be led. In, in other pictures that the Bible uses of, of us is that we are servants or that we are soldiers in the Lord's army, right? Servants don't make their own decisions. They just don't. They are available to be dispatched and allocated at the master's bidding, according to his timing, according to his will. Or think of a soldier. 
A soldier doesn't give himself orders. He doesn't draw up his own battle lines. He is subordinate to the leading and timing of his commander. And so in seeking to minister or in seeking to glorify God in our lives, we have to be led and directed before making choices, before attempting new ventures. Jonathan, Saul's son, is the great example of this in the Old Testament. He sees something that would be good to do. He sees something that he thinks he's equipped to do. He sees a good thing. He says, I, we need to fight against the Philistines. There are some Philistines. And then what does he say to his armor bearer? He says, maybe the Lord will be with us. Let's go see what happens. But he didn't just say, I'm going. He said, I want to be directed by the Lord. And if the Lord directs us, then we'll go. And if the Lord doesn't direct us, then we're not going to go. And that's a great moment and a great example to us in the positive of which Moses is the negative. Where Moses said, I'm motivated and I'm equipped and I'm the guy. And then he went and he comes out of it a murderer on the run, completely set back in a sense for 40 years. And so we have to be people who are directed by God, not just motivated. Verse 37, this is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me among your brothers. He is the one who is in the congregation in the wilderness together with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our ancestors. He received living oracles to give us. Our ancestors were unwilling to obey him but pushed him away and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. They told Aaron, make us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. They even made a calf in those days, offered sacrifices to the idol, and were celebrating what their hands had made. And then God turned away and gave them up to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. House of Israel, did you bring me offerings and sacrifices 40 years in the wilderness? No, you took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your god Rephan, the images that you made to worship. So I will deport you beyond Babylon." So here Stephen shifts his focus from the men God had sent to the people who were resisting the Lord. Even as Moses was actively delivering them, the Israelites resisted and rejected him and pushed him away. With the glory of God shining on top of Mount Sinai, they chose a golden calf instead. And Stephen connects their rejection with what was happening in the Sanhedrin that day by reminding them that Moses was not just the lawgiver, Moses was also the prophet. You see, the Sanhedrin cared all about Moses being the lawgiver, the lawgiver, the lawgiver. He gave us the customs. He gave us the law. You're trying to change those things. And we talked a little bit about that last time. But Stephen says, yeah, Moses gave the law. He also was a prophet. And he spoke some very specific prophecies that you guys know and that you guys should be paying attention to. The prophet Moses had told of Jesus Christ, that coming one. The Jews Stephen was speaking to claimed to be the authorities on Moses. They claimed to be Moses' most dedicated followers. And yet they weren't like him at all. Instead, they were like the stiff-necked congregation in the wilderness who stooped down to the horrors of pagan worship. The Jews of Stephen's day may not have been bowing down to Molech, but they were worshiping man-made idols all the same. Their faith was not in the Lord or in his work or in his Messiah. Their faith was in the traditions that they had made for themselves. That was the work of their hands. The man-made traditions, Jesus said. He says, that's, that's what you guys are following after. You don't follow after God. You're not of your father in heaven. You're not of your father, Abraham. He says, you're of your father, the devil. You're worshiping your man-made idol, the customs that you have created around the message of Moses and the revelation God has given. 
And so like their ancestors before them, these Jews in the Sanhedrin were refusing to accept the testimony of angels, the signs and wonders in their midst, the truth of God made evident to them by the life of Jesus Christ and the power of the church. All of those manifestations that you could see through the life of Moses were seen much, much more through the ministry of Jesus. And in that time, who announced Jesus? The angels. What did Jesus do? He was doing signs and wonders all the time. The church is doing signs and wonders. Their truth couldn't be denied, whether it was Stephen debating with the Jews of the synagogue of the freedmen or Jesus himself. These same guys had gone to Jesus again and again and again, trying to trap him, trying to trip him up, trying to confuse him or trying to uh, you know, get him to say something wrong, and they couldn't. Even as a young boy, they couldn't, you know, withstand the things that he was saying. And so God is speaking clearly, revealing himself clearly through signs and through wonders and through angels and through the truth. And just like that congregation in the wilderness, so this congregation was pushing God's chosen one away, rejecting him, resisting him. And Stephen is just laying it all out very clearly for them. Verse 44, our ancestors had the tabernacle of the testimony in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses commanded him to make it according to the pattern he had seen. Our ancestors in turn received it and with Joshua brought it in when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers until the days of David. He found favor in God's sight and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built him a house. However, the Most High does not dwell in sanctuaries made with hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What sort of house would you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is my resting place? Did not my hand make all these things? The story of David and his desire to build God a house is another example for us. He was a man who was passionate about glorifying God. He wanted to explore what could he do to magnify the Lord in his life. How could he do something that was an act of worship to God? Of course, like Moses, sometimes his zeal got out ahead of God's leading, specifically with his plan to build a temple. He said, I'm going to build a temple. And Nathan says, that's great. And God says, it's not great. Go on back and let him know he's not going to build the temple. And so he had to be adjusted there. And uh, we understand that. But David was hungry for spiritual things. He organized his life so that his life could be generating worship to God and so that he could be available to serve God and so that he could magnify God through the activities of his life. What a potent mindset that would be to have now that we are the temple of the living God. He dwells in us. We don't have to construct a building. We don't have to go to a place. We're here now. And so to have David's mindset in this dispensation of grace is a worthy goal and a worthy example for all of us. Time fails us to comment on Joshua and Solomon and Isaiah, as Stephen does here. Let's see how he closes his sermon. Verse 51, you stiff-necked people with uncircumcised heart and ears, you are always resisting the Holy Spirit as your ancestors did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They even killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You received the law under the direction of angels and yet have not kept it. Everything Stephen says here is absolutely true. It's obvious, it's clear. And these simple stories from their history clearly reveal that the Sanhedrin were right in line with the jealous brothers of Joseph, with the calf worshipers in the wilderness, with the killers of God's messengers through the time of the kings. The Sanhedrin, they paraded themselves as spiritual, but they were still fleshly in their hearts, hearing what they wanted to hear. 
doing not what God wanted, but what they wanted themselves. Rather than prepare themselves their whole lives to crown the Messiah that God had been telling them about for thousands of years, when he showed up, they refused to acknowledge him. When they came and uh, when he came and they sent him to a cross instead because of their jealousy, because of their pride. These, uh, this resistance in their hearts led to a situation where they could watch Jesus Christ raise Lazarus from the dead and their only response was, well, we got to kill both of these guys. That's the kind of resistance that Stephen is talking about. Dramatic resistance. And we see, you know, the situation, say, in Exodus with the people in the wilderness there. God's glory is shining on Mount Sinai. They've seen the Red Sea parted. The, the cloud of smoke and the cloud of fire is with them right there. All of these miracles, all of these things. And they say, well, why don't we just worship a golden calf? And it's easy for us to scratch our heads and say, what's going on there? How could you possibly do that? But then you fast forward and the same thing is happening uh, in all of these different eras and it was happening right in Jesus' midst as he's raising the dead, as he's giving sight to the blind, as he's healing everybody and teaching all these things. He's multiplying food and all of this. But it was because their hearts were uncircumcised. They, they wanted to go their own way. They refused to go God's way. They refused to humble themselves and bow the knee. And so they sent Jesus Christ, the ultimate Savior, the one that Joseph and Moses and David all foreshadowed. They sent him to the cross. Rather than honor God, they chose instead to go their own way. God had tried again and again and again to speak to them as a group. He had spoken to the sons of Abraham through the provision of Joseph, through the phenomenon of Moses, through the glorious presence of the tabernacle, the prevailing of Joshua, the passion of David, all of these different things. And even now, we remember what we saw last time, that throughout this entire discussion, Stephen's face is glowing, shining with the glory of God as he delivered yet another plea to the wayward sons of Israel. In the next passage, Stephen will be killed and violent persecution is going to break out against the church, scattering believers all over the Roman Empire. But for now, we want to do the opposite of the Sanhedrin that day and allow these Bible stories to speak to us. God's word is given to us for our instruction and our direction, every passage, every page, every story, so that we can know what God has done and what that means for us as his servants. In these stories, we learn about mature faith and active faith. We see how God works in various times and in various ways. But that consistent in all of his work is his desire to use men and women like you and me. God doesn't require perfection. We can't offer that. He doesn't require greatness or popularity. Those things can actually be a hindrance sometimes. He's simply looking for ears that will listen and hearts that will obey. He's looking for those who will stop resisting and instead go his way, that, that heart that will follow him, that will say, Lord, I trust you. Let's go where you want to go. Be they young or old, free or slave, weak or strong, well-supplied or deep in fa famine, as we learn from these examples and the others in the Bible, and as we trust the Lord and follow his leading, then we too will join the ranks of these faithful servants and become meaningful members of the Lord's glorious work. What a wonderful thing that any old Bible story can deliver to us treasure and truth that can shape our lives so that we might in turn be used to shape this world. Amen?